welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Lots to talk about today. Um, for one thing, I'm going to talk about um, two things that 99% of Catholics do not know about the benefits of Holy Mass. Uh, also, we've talked over the last couple of weeks about the phenomenon of uh, so-called doom-scrolling on social media. And today we're going to look at uh, what one Catholic discovered by giving up social media for Lent. Also, we're going to explore what the Bible has to say about the kingdom of God. So what is it? How do you enter it? And so on. But uh, to begin, as always, in the uh, ordinary form liturgy, this week began with the sixth Sunday of Easter. And the gospel was taken from John 14, 23 through 29, and reading, as usual, from the New Catholic Bible translation. Jesus answered him, Whoever loves me will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not my own, but that of the Father who sent me. I have told you these things while I am still with you. However, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Be not afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. <clears throat> now because the di uh, disciples were still expecting Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom and overthrow Roman oppression, they found it hard to understand why he didn't just tell the world at large that he was the Messiah. But not everyone could understand Jesus' message. Of course, this was before the descent of the Holy Spirit. I mean, ever since uh, that first Pentecost, which we will celebrate liturgically in a couple of weeks, uh, ever since Pentecost, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed to the whole world. And yet we still see that not everyone is receptive to it. Our Lord is the fullness of the revelation of God, and the incarnation has given God a human face and a human heart. But Jesus saves the deepest revelations of himself for those who love and obey him. In verse 26, Jesus promised the apostles that the Holy Spirit would help them remember everything that he had taught them and to understand it with a, a kind of inspired 2020 hindsight. Now, this divine promise ensures the validity of Holy Scripture. And you consider the Gospels. Um, Matthew and John were apostles, and so eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and teachings. And the Holy Spirit helped them remember and understand, but without taking away their individual perspectives. Uh, Mark's gospel consists largely of the preaching of St. Peter, but St. Mark was himself a disciple and an eyewitness of many of the, of the events related in his gospel. And Luke was a disciple of St. Paul. And many of the things exclusive to his gospel come from his conferring with eyewitnesses, most especially the Blessed Virgin Mary. So the human authors of the Bible utilized their own talents and perspectives, but because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can truly say that God is the primary author of Scripture. So Catholics can be confident that the gospels are accurate records of what Jesus uh, taught and did. 
And the Holy Spirit can help us in the same way. See, by studying the Bible in the context of sacred tradition and magisterial teaching, which is also protected by the Holy Spirit, we can trust him to guide us when we apply the scriptures to our own lives, that we'll be doing it in accord with God's will, and that he will alert us when we're straying from it. See, and the end result of, of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is this deep and lasting peace, not as the world gives, as our Lord says. <clears throat> because unlike worldly peace, which is typically understood as the absence of conflict, Christ's peace is available to us in any and every circumstance. When you have the peace of Christ, you have no need to fear the present or the future. And when your life is full of stress, you can call upon the Holy Spirit to fill you with Christ's peace. Jesus says of those who love him and keep his word, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He says, the kingdom of God is within you. St. Paul asks, do you not realize that you are God's temple and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? This indwelling of the Holy Trinity is what we call a state of grace, and the state of grace is the foundation of our peace. But for all that we've been redeemed, we are yet fallen creatures, and we live in a fallen world. Temptation and fear and uncertainty are constantly at war within us. But if we remain in the state of grace, the peace of God lives in our hearts to restrain those hostile forces and to, and to offer comfort in place of conflict. And if we should give in to temptation and commit a mortal sin and fall from the state of grace, Jesus is faithful to forgive us and to absolve us of our sins in the sacrament of confession. God gives us his grace through the sacraments and through prayer, and we will experience his peace if only we're willing to accept it and cooperate with it. Finally, notice that there are two kinds of peace that Christ gives the apostles on, on Holy Thursday. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, be not afraid. So referring to inner turmoil on the one hand and then external persecution on the other. <clears throat> but Jesus knew he would have to give the apostles a follow-up lesson on Easter Sunday. Scripture says the apostles were huddled in the upper room and experiencing this inner turmoil of guilt over abandoning our Lord at his passion, as well as the external threat of persecution. John 20, 19 says, the doors of the house where the disciples had gathered were locked because of their fear of the Jews. Jesus then came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And understanding both their inner guilt and their outward fear, scripture says, after saying this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Peace be with you, Jesus said to them again. So in other words, look at my wounds and understand that I've paid the price for your sins. And don't be afraid because I've conquered death. So he gently affirmed his double message of peace from Holy Thursday by once again repeating twice, peace be with you. Let not your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. That's the message for you and me today. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. So we need to understand that true peace is a divine gift. And to seek this peace through mental gymnastics, uh, such as mindfulness or physical gymnastics like yoga and so on, 
that can create only an, an imitation piece, uh, at best a, a temporary peace of mind, but never peace of heart or peace of soul. That is a fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of our trust in God. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, St. Paul says, Do not worry about anything, but present your needs to God in prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Then the peace of God, which is beyond all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, since uh, Pope Francis's consecration of Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, there's been a lot of talk about Our Lady of Fatima's promise of peace. But I think we need to remember that Our Lady does not bring any new revelation, but only reminds us of the fullness of God's revelation in her divine Son. Remember, at the Annunciation, when Jesus became man under the heart of Mary, his peace entered the world. Nine months later, at his nativity, the angels sang, Peace on earth to people of goodwill. But worldly conflict did not cease when the Savior was born, nor when he rose from the dead. So when looked at from this perspective, it seems to me that Our Lady of Fatima's promise of peace may well represent a special outpouring of grace, which will enable those of goodwill to more fully appreciate and more fully acquire the peace of Christ. Now, whether that's correct or not, the good news is you don't have to wait. In Philippians 4, 8, and 9, St. Paul says, Finally, brethren, let your minds be filled with whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure and whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise. Do the things that you have learned, received, and heard from me. Then the God of peace will be with you. Yes, there is fulfillment and happiness for us and for us now and not just at the, the end of all things. Now, that's what the word peace evokes in the scriptures. True peace is a divine gift to which Christ gives us access in our communion with God, most especially through the sacraments and through prayer, and that's no nonsense. Okay, We've got a lot to talk about today, and including, I think when we come back, there is one verse in here, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, comment on it, uh, in a verse from the gospel that we just read, which is verse 28, where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. Now, that might be a question mark, uh, you know, for some folks, especially given the fact that we believe in the, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, which says that all the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, are, in fact, equal. So what did he mean when he said, the Father is greater than I? We're going to talk about that when we come back. We're also going to talk about what is the kingdom of God? How do you enter it? What are its values? Uh, we're going to talk about doom-scrolling and the dangers of doom-scrolling than what it presents to us in our spiritual life, and, uh, and more. So all that and more when we come back with uh, lots more no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So stay with us, and we shall return after these messages.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And before we go on, as I mentioned in the last segment, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the meaning of verse 28 in our gospel reading from John 14, where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. Now, as Catholics, we believe that God the Son is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But by taking on human nature as the Son of God, God the Son, Jesus, willingly submits to God the Father, just as he also submitted to the physical limitations of his sacred humanity so that he might suffer for us. St. Paul says in Philippians 2.6, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. The scripture scholars tell us that this verse is from an ancient Christian hymn, which was either written by St. Paul himself or was perhaps already a part of the liturgy. And the full breadth of the mystery of Christ is expressed there, especially in two of its major aspects, that of descent and return. <clears throat> so during his stay on earth, Jesus was deprived of the glory that by right belonged to him so that he might receive it again from the Father as a reward for his supreme sacrifice. He, he descended into the ultimate depths of abasement, accepting death, even death on a cross, as the scripture says. But then the movement is reversed. The Father glorifies him, makes the universe subject to him, and gives him the supreme prerogative, that is, the, the regal and divine title of Lord and King, which we're going to be talking about later. Now, in context, uh, St. Paul is thinking about the pride that's shown by mere creatures who want to be equal with God, which, of course, was the temptation that caused the fall of man. And it is the temptation that dogs us still to decide for ourselves what is good and evil. I mean, what is transgenderism other than a vain attempt to usurp the sovereignty of God? And St. Paul contrasts this with the sacrificial self-giving and self-denial of Christ. And so this hymn is clearly reminiscent of the songs of the servant of God, especially Isaiah 53, which echoed so strongly in the preaching of Jesus and in the teaching and the liturgy of the early church. It's, it's the whole mystery of the incarnate Son of God that Paul chants here. We don't have time to go and to, you know, to read the whole thing. But he, he shows such clarity and depth, the, the preexistence of, of Christ, his abasement, his exaltation. But he does so with a purpose beyond the praise of Christ, which is namely to exhort us Christians to live the demands of our baptism. Now, my youngest daughter was just confirmed uh, last Sunday, and at her confirmation mass, the bishop led us all in a renewal of our baptismal promises. And, and what a great responsibility we bear. And, and what a joy, especially as a convert, to be there with a successor of the apostles publicly affirming our faith. But Jesus, <clears throat> although it's a great responsibility, Jesus assures us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he freely gives us all the graces necessary to, as he said in our gospel today, keep his word. St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, a light burden indeed, which carries him that bears it. I have looked through all nature for a resemblance of this and seem to find a shadow of it in the wings of a bird, which are indeed borne by the creature and yet support her flight towards heaven. <laughs> Amen. Now, uh, a while back, uh, two or three weeks ago, I think, I, I shared some thoughts from the late Father John Hampsh, 
uh, I knew Father Hamsch and, and I liked him. And although he was thoroughly charismatic and I am more on the traditional side, we had a lot in common, uh, especially a lively appreciation of the supernatural and a love for the saints. Anyway, Father wrote an article back in the day with the intriguing title, 99% of Catholics do not know these facts about the Mass. And it focused on, on two sets of information that few Catholics are aware of. The first being some seldom explained theological information regarding the benefits of Masses offered uh, uh, for the living, actually. Um, and, and some rarely explained benefits that the living can obtain for themselves by uh, devout attendance at Mass. Okay, a little bit of background. Um, you're probably aware that uh, through the centuries, there have been literally thousands of earthly apparitions of souls in purgatory. And why would God allow this? Well, the most common and urgent plea is that prayer be offered for them, and especially to have masses offered for them to shorten their time in purgatory and or lessen the intensity of their suffering. Now, the exact nature of the suffering of the poor souls is a mystery because it's not a matter of explicit revelation. Uh, St. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 3.15 how uh, a person whose work is burned up will be saved, but only as through fire. And so, you know, we, we understand that there's some pain, perhaps, or certainly cleansing involved in purgatory. In any case, the consensus among spiritual writers seems to be that the greatest of the sufferings of, of the poor souls who are going through this process of purgation is their intense desire for the vision of God, which is a, a mystical hunger that's ignited in the soul at the moment of death, but of course a union that is impossible until the, the soul is cleansed. Revelation 21, 20, 27 tells us that nothing unclean will enter heaven. And St. Paul in Hebrews uh, chapter 12 makes the distinction between those souls who go straight to heaven and those who are first cleansed in purgatory. He refers to them as the church of the firstborn versus the spirits of the just made perfect. And that masses offered for the poor souls can ease and eventually end their suffering is supported not just by private revelations, but by sacred tradition and the teaching of the church. Uh, Father Hamps said, any prayer but especially the holy sacrifice of the Mass when offered for any or all souls in purgatory is appreciated far, far more than a starving person appreciates a banquet of delicious food. It exceeds our imagining. But here's the thing. Despite private revelations and even many apparitions of souls in purgatory about the value of offering Masses for the dead, supported by centuries of church teaching, other revelations and church teaching are perhaps even more significant, namely that masses offered for living persons are more beneficial than masses offered for the dead. See, masses for the dead can gain an indulgence for the souls in purgatory, but if mass is offered as an intercession for persons who are, number one, still alive, and number two, in the state of grace, right, with no unabsolved serious sins, they can receive three benefits that are not available to the poor souls. Namely, uh, number one, an increase of merit, uh, eternal merit. Okay, it lasts forever. Two, an increase of sanctifying grace. Right, It's an increase of, of holiness. It's a deeper sharing in the life of Christ, in the life of God. And number three, 
actual graces which help us to do good and avoid evil. The point is that the dead cannot grow spiritually. Their level of holiness and their eternal reward can be increased only before death. According to the proverb of Solomon, wherever the tree falls, there it will lie. That is, as the Catechism teaches, the state of one's soul at death decides its ultimate destiny, for that's when individual judgment occurs, as St. Paul says in Hebrews 9. Um, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. And then that will be reaffirmed publicly at the last judgment, or, or general judgment, as our Lord himself talks about in Matthew 25. So, while masses offered for the poor souls are very commendable and to be encouraged, because they can provide great relief, masses offered for a living person can provide growth. See, both ways <clears throat> of applying the merits of the mass are acts of the virtue of charity. But as my silver-haired old mother used to say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And Father Hamps said the Lord would often let him see the spiritual benefits in many of his friends who asked him to celebrate mass for them or for their loved ones. And keeping in mind that even one Mass for a soul in purgatory is enormously helpful for that soul. St. Anselm, a great medieval doctor of the Church, said that a single Mass offered for a person while alive may be worth more than a thousand offered for them after death. Pope Benedict XV proclaimed it definitively. He said, The Holy Mass is of greater profit if offered for a person during their lifetime than when celebrated for that soul's relief after death. Okay, so that's number one. The second block of, of seldom known truths has to do with the manner of assisting at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. St. Gertrude, and another great medieval saint, and a spiritual friend of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, which is all the recommendation I need, uh, but she's also one of only a handful of saints with the appellation the Great. And Jesus himself revealed to St. Gertrude that for each Mass that we attend, not routinely or casually, but with fervent devotion. She said at least one saint will be sent from heaven to comfort and support us spiritually at the hour of our death. St. John Vianney affirmed that if we could see the spiritual value, value available to us from even one Mass attended with attention, reverence, and devotion, he said we would die of joy. More recently, Pope St. Paul VI declared that the Mass is the most perfect form of prayer. And he added that attending Mass without devoutly receiving communion, he said it's like having a beautiful ring without the diamond in its setting. Okay, a word about that. You note that uh, St. Paul VI says this about communion received devoutly, which means well. Pope Pius X agreed. I mean, he was the, the first pope of modern times to encourage frequent, even daily communion. But note the conditions. He said that one must not approach the Blessed Sacrament out of routine or vainglory or human respect. And while it is always requisite to be in a state of grace, it's desirable, he said, that a frequent communicant be free from even venial sin and any attachment thereto. And in any case, should each time make a serious preparation and a suitable thanksgiving. Okay, food for thought. Uh, finally, St. Padre Pio, the stigmatist priest, and this is often misquoted, but what he said was that the world could exist more easily without the sun 
then the kingdom of God could exist without the mass. And then Father Hampsch uh, related how on one occasion uh, when St. Teresa of Avila was in deep contemplation and she was overwhelmed with uh, profound spiritual peace and joy, and she asked the Lord, how can anyone possibly thank you for your infinite goodness? And Jesus replied, by attending even one Mass with deepest love and fervor. It is, I hope, interesting to hear about these you know, beautiful and seldom proclaimed or fully appreciated truths uh, regarding the benefits of offering and assisting at Holy Mass. But remember that we are called to be doers and not hearers only. In other words, our interest should be ennobled with implementation. We are all victims of routine in our daily activities, and, and regular liturgical prayer is no exception. And Father Ham said that even priests, or perhaps especially priests, can frequently fall into a mechanical way of practicing their sacred ministry and lose their fervor. And we're going to talk about what he suggested to help them with that. When we come back, lots more no-nonsense Catholics right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. In 1 Corinthians 11, 28, and 29, St. Paul says that a person should examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Like Pope St. Pius X said, you must not approach the Blessed Sacrament out of mere routine. And as I was mentioning before the break, Father Hamp said we're all victims of routine in our daily activities, and regular liturgical prayer is no exception. Something to watch out for. But he said that, that even priests, or perhaps especially priests, frequently fall into a, a, a mechanical way of practicing their sacred ministry, that they can lose their firmer fervor in performing even the most sacred actions, whether it's giving sacramental absolution and confession or even celebrating the Mass. And he said it would help them if they were graciously reminding of the consoling truths that we've been talking about, perhaps if and when you arrange to have Masses offered for them. See, it's, it's a good thought to remember all the priests who have baptized or absolved or counseled you or your family, uh, those who have performed your family's marriages and, and, and funerals, and to place all of the priests, you know, whether living or deceased, in the heart of Jesus in the Eucharistic presence. And that's no nonsense. All right. We've been talking over the last couple of shows about the modern phenomenon of doom scrolling also known as doom surfing, doom scrolling is a phenomenon where you constantly kind of scroll through social media or surf internet information and opinion sites, ostensibly to keep up with the latest news. And uh, it, it seems particularly, even if that news is bad, the crisis in the church, the latest political or celebrity scandal, wars and rumors of wars, etc. Now, it should hardly be surprising that doom scrolling can be detrimental to your peace of mind and soul. Now, on Monday, Crisis Magazine posted an article by one Derek Taylor called Doom Scrolling Past Christ. And Mr. Taylor relates how he gave up Twitter for Lent, with except, you know, exception of some limited exposure on Sundays, which he now plans to continue indefinitely. 
He says Twitter had become a favorite pastime. And although he admits the platform is, quote, full of mental sewage, unquote, he says that he generally finds the kind of inane discourse that characterizes Twitter entertaining. And he was able to connect with like-minded people. However, he says, it is very compulsive. The word doom scrolling is a perfect encapsulation of a terrible habit. And then Mr. Taylor confesses that he has a familiarity with compulsion, having formerly suffered from anxiety and depression. And his main uh, concern with Twitter addiction is that it interfered with his prayer life. And he considers the great danger of Twitter and other forms of social media being that it can so easily take your thoughts away from God. So having given it up for Lent, pardon me, he went in search of guidance from the church. Now, naturally, this is a relatively new phenomenon, but he did find that since the pontificate of uh, Pope Pius XI, who actually wrote an encyclical on film from back in the silent days, the Vatican has kept up a pretty steady stream of documents on uh, modern means of communication. And there's even a, a yearly World Communications Day that was established by Pope Paul VI in 1967, and it was inspired by the Vatican II document, Intermerifica, which expounded on both the possibilities and the dangers of modern media in a way that holds up fairly well, considering that there was no 24-hour television or internet in those days. Now, in the early 2000s, the Vatican issued two documents on the internet, the Church and Internet and Ethics and Internet. And Mr. Taylor says these largely repeat many of the same strictures about the uses of modern technology for reaching the modern world, and also for evangelizing with the requisite caveats about their dangers. I would add that Pope uh, St. John Paul II often spoke about mass media and evangelizing through the media. And in his message for World Communications Day of 2002, he said the Internet can offer magnificent opportunities for evangelization if used with competence and a clear awareness of its strengths and weaknesses, and that Christian living calls for continuing instruction and catechesis And this is perhaps the area in which the Internet can provide excellent help. However, he warned that electronically mediated relationships can never take the place of the direct human contact required for genuine evangelization. However, he added that while the Internet can never replace that profound experience of God, which only the living, liturgical, and sacramental life of the Church can offer, it can certainly provide a unique supplement and support in both preparing for the encounter with Christ in community and sustaining the new believer in the journey of faith uh, that then begins. Uh, He said the Internet causes billions of images to appear on millions of computer monitors around the planet. And then he asked an important question. Will the face of Christ and the voice of Christ uh, be heard? And this is what will make the Internet a genuinely human space For if there is no room for Christ, there is no room for man. Finally, he concluded with a challenge. I dared to summon the whole church bravely to cross this new threshold, to put out into the deep of the net, so that the great engagement of the gospel and culture may show to the world the glory of God on the face of Christ. Beautiful words, and spoken before the advent of the smartphone. And yet for all of that, Mr. Taylor says, what surprised me about these documents is that they deal exclusively with the social consequences of media and never on the personal impact they may have. You know, I I would say that uh, when John Paul wrote those those words, uh, that danger may not have been as uh, 
apparent as it is today. He says, uh, Mr. Taylor says, aside from a few warnings about the Internet not being a replacement for the sacraments, the Vatican's instructions on the Internet almost never treat social media as a personal spiritual problem in the sense I defined it. And I was able to find I was unable to find anything on the use of social media as such, either on the Vatican website or that of the USCCB. That's the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. He said that though Catholic critics make many salient points, they don't really address the issue I was concerned with, namely our personal relationship with God. Frankly, I have found more helpful advice in secular reflections on the media than from church authorities. And he goes on to talk about how critics, really going all the way back to the initial popularity of newspapers in the 18th century, have commented that news addiction tends to be detrimental to religion. And that since news media breaks down larger patterns of knowledge into tiny bits of information, detaching them from larger context. And why do they do that? Well, to sell them, of course. <laughs> Religion, on the other hand, he says, is about the largest perspective there is, that of eternity. He says it's not a surprise that as our media-driven modern world has become more hectic, belief in an unchanging eternity has waned. And that got me to thinking that perhaps we already have the answer. Because long before newspapers and other mass media, certainly long before social media, there was always gossip. And let's face it, most of what passes for news and information today is just that. And the Bible itself warns of the dangers of an unbridled tongue. And the saints and spiritual writers have had much to say on the topic. I need go no further uh, for an example than to Thomas Akempis in The Imitation of Christ and his uh, advice to avoid superfluous words. You know, he might, this was written in the Middle Ages, but he might well have been talking directly about social media when he wrote, discussing worldly matters, no matter how good the intention, is a great obstacle to the spiritual life. If we are not careful, we can easily be deceived and attracted by the vanities of the world. Often I regret the things I have said, and wished I had not spent so much time in worldly company. And make no mistake, what social media offer primarily is worldly company. And he goes on to say, we think that we will be a comfort to one another and find relaxation by discussing the things that burden us. But the end result of all this gossip about things we like or dislike only leaves us with a guilty conscience. He says, it is better to watch and pray so that we do not waste time in idleness. But then he adds, if you have leave to speak and it is expedient, then speak of God and those things which will edify. And I know that there are those among us who use their social media for just that. And for them, Thomas Akempis has this to say, a bad use or neglect of our spiritual progress makes us careless of what we say. However, Devout conversation on spiritual matters is beneficial to the soul, especially when people who are congenial in mind and spirit are drawn together in God. Hence the words of St. Paul to the Philippians, uh, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, let your minds be filled with whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise. Do the things that you have learned, received, and heard from me, then the God of peace will be with you. Now, we quoted that in the first segment today, and it's back again, because it is the answer 
to so much of what ails us through our uh, uh, use of media, and that's no nonsense. All right. As you longtime listeners already know, and uh, even if you're new, could probably have guessed from my comments so far today, I am a medievalist. I find the age of faith endlessly fascinating, and I love to learn about things medieval. Uh, I recently learned, for example, that most cooking done by common medieval folks was done in clay pots with round bottoms uh, to evenly distribute the heat and with three legs because obviously a round bottom pot falls over. Uh, the thing that I found most interesting, though, is that potters didn't want to haul the clay over long distances, so the most common place to get it was on the side of the road. This, of course, led to medieval people commonly finding holes on the side of the road, which became known as, you guessed it, potholes. Now, this has nothing to do with what I wanted to talk about. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, the point is, as a medievalist, I have developed an appreciation of things medieval, and that includes Christian monarchy. And I think it well to remember that our Lord himself is King of Kings, and that we are subjects of the reign of Christ the King, as well as co-heirs with him uh, to the kingdom. But what precisely is the kingdom of God or, or the kingdom of heaven to which Jesus so often referred? And to find the answer, we're going to take a look at the kingdom of God as it is revealed in Scripture when we come back uh, after these messages. You are listening to No Nonsense Catholic with your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We are, as Christians, subjects of the reign of Christ the King. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we are co-heirs with him of the kingdom. But what precisely is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which is so often referred to in the Gospels? Well, to find the answer, I think it well to look uh, at the kingdom of God as it is revealed in Scripture. You know, in Mark chapter 10, the apostles James and John ask our Lord uh, to allow them to sit, say, allow us to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Now, the apostles, like most Jews of that day, had the wrong idea about the Messianic predict uh, kingdom that had been predicted by the Old Testament prophets. And they thought that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom that would free Judea from oppression by pagan Rome. And James and John wanted to have honored places in that kingdom. But as Jesus told Pilate, his kingdom is not of this world. So where is the kingdom of God if it's not to be found in, in palaces and throne rooms? And the answer is in the hearts and lives of his followers. To be in the state of grace with the Holy Trinity indwelling your soul is to be in the kingdom. See, what the disciples didn't understand until after Jesus' resurrection is the kingdom of God is a reality now. The Lord's Prayer concludes with the petition, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that phrase, thy kingdom come, is a reference to God's spiritual reign, not, not you know, Judea's freedom from pagan Rome. God's kingdom was first announced in the covenant with Abraham, and it was foreshadowed in the covenant with King David, and it is now present in Christ's reign in the heart's 
of believers. Jesus' words in Luke 17, 21 are variously translated as, for the kingdom of God is within you, or among you, or in your midst. Therefore, the kingdom is to be found interiorly in the individual Christian in the state of grace, and in the community that our Lord founded, which is the Catholic Church. And finally, his kingdom will be complete when all evil is destroyed and God establishes the new heavens and the new earth. Now, obviously, the values of this kingdom run counter to human expectations. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 is called the day of parables because it's the whole chapter is, is parables. And in verse 11, Jesus tells the apostles, to you has been granted knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. And the word mysteries is sometimes translated as secrets. And in this case, the secret or mystery is that the kingdom is already present in the ministry of Jesus. And the many parables in Matthew 13 teach us about the kingdom, about God and his kingdom. And they explain what the kingdom is really like as opposed to our expectations of it. The kingdom of heaven is a spiritual realm where God rules and where we share in his eternal life. We join that kingdom when we uh, are baptized into Christ and, and into his church. But just being baptized isn't enough. You have to live out your baptismal vows. You know, if the first requisite for kingdom living is to be in the state of grace, then it's certainly possible to be in the church, but not in the kingdom. You know, Jesus himself describes such a soul as, as a branch that's cut off from the vine. All right, so the kingdom, about being in the church and being in a state of grace. But the kingdom will be revealed in its fullness. In the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus tells us that it is the smallest of seeds, and, and he compared that tiny seed to his, to his kingdom, right, to the church, to show how it would have humble beginnings but, but grow and grow uh, uh, around the world and produce great results. And the church has gone through many trials and will suffer many more. Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 675, says, Before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God and of his Messiah come in the flesh. It is chilling how well that describes our current situation. But it's not a cause for fear or doubt. St. Hilary of Poitiers said all the way back in the 4th century, it is a prerogative of the church that she is the vanquisher when she's persecuted, that she captures our intellects when her doctrines are questioned, that she conquers all at the very moment when she is abandoned by all. So I don't think that the end of the world is, is necessarily imminent. But in any case, we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, not with fear or despair, but in joyful hope. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that at the end of the world, angels will separate the evil from the good, and the good will be invited to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. There are true and false believers in the church today, as always. But we should be cautious in our judgments, because at the end of the day, it's Christ who will make that final separation. 
And it is far more useful for you and for me to judge our own response to God than to criticize other. Because to be a subject of the kingdom of God is our most valuable possession. The kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything else, and we must be willing to give up everything to obtain it. The man in the parable who discovered the treasure in the field stumbled upon it by accident, but knew its value when he found it. The merchant, on the other hand, was earnestly searching for the pearl of great price, and when he found it, he sold everything he had to purchase it. See, God determines who is in his kingdom. Those who search and, and those who, who stumble into it, which is, <laughs> which is me. St. Augustine says that the, the, the New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. The Old Testament points the way to Jesus, and so the New Testament upholds its authority and its relevance. Uh, Jesus quotes liberally from the Old Testament. But there's a double benefit for those who understand Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven, that the religious leaders of his day had waited centuries for his coming, but could not recognize him because he didn't fit their existing expectations, their preconceptions. They were looking for a physical and temporal kingdom ushered in by judgment on their enemies. But Jesus taught that the kingdom is now and the judgment is to come. But because of their, their preconception, the religious leaders were blind to the spiritual significance of the kingdom that Christ brought. Our Lord says in Luke 21, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, sink God's kingdom, seek God's kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Fear not, little flock, for your Father has chosen to give you the kingdom. So seeking the kingdom of God, in Matthew's version, seek first the kingdom of God and his justice. This should be our primary concern. To put remaining in the state of grace before all else, and that makes, means making Jesus the, the Lord and the king of your life. You know, we call Jesus Lord over 40 times in the ordinary of the Mass. And there's a reason that we call him Lord so often in worship. Because to remain in the state of grace means giving Christ control of your life your work, your play, your plans, your relationships. You know, is following Christ only one of your many concerns, or is it central to all that you do? Now, see, I have to admit that there's areas in my life where Christ isn't in full control. The most obvious example is that I <laughs> take a look at me. I love to eat. You know, Christ is Lord of my business life, my family life, my apostolate, my prayer life, certainly. But when I sit down at the table, well, all too often the food is Lord. And I've been on a diet roller coaster for years, and I struggle to control my appetite. And that's what so much of life, in, uh, um, what life in the kingdom consists of. It's an attitude of struggle with sin and a willingness to be converted when we've drawn away from God and a constant desire to realize in ourselves the requirements of our baptism. That's why our Lord instituted the sacrament of penance right on the first Easter Sunday. He told the apostles, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. After this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. He made the apostles more than just preachers of, of, of his mystery, but ministers of his forgiveness. He sends the Spirit upon them as the Spirit was, was sent on him by the Father at his baptism. When he was beginning 
his mission. See, this marks the beginning of the apostolic mission, this, that, that Easter Sunday when the apostles receive the fullness of the priesthood. And then 50 days later, when they receive the Holy Spirit. The apostolic mission, uh, the church, is a continuation of the work of Jesus Christ. You read the Gospels, and we see all the things that Jesus did, and then you read the Acts of the Apostles, and you see the Apostles doing all the things that Jesus did. The first half, uh, approximately, is showing how Peter did all of the things that Jesus did, and then the second half is Paul doing all the things that Peter did, showing us that succession, showing us that the ministry of Christ continues to our own day in the ministry of the church. And, and that's why your personal penance and your personal quest for Christian perfection has a communitarian dimension, because you and I are members of the same body, the body of Christ, the people of God, the, the, the kingdom of God. We're subjects of the same king. And so the question is, uh, are you or I holding back any area of our lives from God's control? And if so, why? Not are you struggling, not are you in, in need of his grace, but are you holding back? And if so, why? Because we have our Lord's promise that he will provide all we need, as well as guide us how to use what he provides. And that is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And that's no nonsense. Well, that's another one down. So wonderful to have had you along with us today or whenever you're listening to this uh, podcast or if you're listening on radio. I want to thank you uh, for your continued patronage, especially for your prayers, your spiritual support, and also, um, if possible, your financial support. Uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio does a great deal of work. We are not subsidized. We uh, depend entirely upon the contributions, the donations of our listeners. So visit vmpr.org, vmpr.org, and you can uh, download our smartphone app and you can hit the big blue donate button and uh, find out how to become a monthly donor or make a one-time donation. And if that's not possible for you, then please do remember us in your prayers because we depend very much on your spiritual support as well as your financial support. By the way, when you're on the app, there's all sorts of uh, good stuff there, prayers and whatnot. And also on the uh, website, you can find out what we're up to here at BMPR and uh, be a part of that as well. So until next time, Matthew Arnold saying thanks for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family.